The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. My plan is to continue through the month of November with a series that's a topical series, not confined to any one book, but I've moved about many different scriptures, talking about the subject of prayer. Mindful of the fact that it is God who is at the center of prayer. It's not about a technique or a particular way of learning to speak. It's more than anything else about learning who God is and knowing how he works and how he desires us to approach him. A interesting and unique passage about prayer is in Acts chapter 12. Some of you will recognize this story full of human interest. Acts 12, I read verses 1 through 17. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries were before the door guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, that it was even real. He thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. 
And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Most of us who use a computer, I am perhaps the foremost in this category, have only a minimal knowledge of what the machine is really capable of doing or exactly how it's doing anything within its inner workings. But I still use a computer. Most of us who drive a car could not explain how a fuel injector is put together or how to repair it if something was wrong with it, but we still drive cars. And while most of the what and why and how of prayer remains beyond our grasp, some of it hidden deep in folds of God's providence, we can still pray. And when we do, marvelous works of God often appear before our wondering gaze. Those who believe in prayer, even, are often slow to connect what exactly is going on in our world. Where is the answer that God is going to bring to my prayer? And he may have already answered, and you just don't know it yet. We understand many times what God is doing best in hindsight. Isn't that true? We look back and we say, oh, six months later, now I see what that event and that event had to do with one another and how God was working there. Well, Acts 12 tells of a very dramatic, unrecognized answer to prayer. Believers had a hard time comprehending that what they had asked for was standing right on their doorstep. And they couldn't connect it. In fact, the dullness of spirit here is almost comical. One commentator called this one of the most humorous passages in the New Testament. You know, it's okay to laugh when you read the Bible if humor is indicated, and it is in this passage, I think. Their dullness of spirit would have us say, what is wrong with you people? Can't you understand that God was bringing the very thing you were looking for? Well, Acts 12 opens up here with mounting persecution against the early Christians and with the apparent inability of God's people to know what in the world they could do to help themselves. They were facing powers way beyond themselves, and to their great surprise, apparently in a very quick move, James, the brother of John, had become the first New Testament apostle to literally lose his head as a martyr. Now, we know Stephen, the deacon, was killed before this in Acts 6, but the first of the original 12 disciples to die as a martyr to the faith was James, that same James that was repeatedly mentioned as being in the inner core, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. You hear their names together numerous times. They were the ones that were brought by Jesus to witness privileged things like the transfiguration and other great miracles or hear Jesus teach things that weren't necessarily heard by all the rest. And do get it clear that this is not the James who wrote the book of James. If you look carefully at this passage, you would have noticed the last verse that I read, verse 17, Peter said, tell these things to James, not the one who had died, but James, the brother of Jesus, who became a leader in the, in the Jerusalem church and who wrote the letter we call James. 
Well, here they are arrayed against the destructive power of Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when he was an infant, and the nephew, I believe, of Herod Antipas, who was the one that killed John the Baptist. These Herods are a very mixed-up group. You have a hard time untangling them. But Herod Agrippa was a weak man, a man who wanted to please others and thought that he was fulfilling his role in life if he just simply used his rather limited power to please people who were themselves in power. Here was the power of a, a weak human politician over against the saving power of God. And guess whose power ended up in the upper hand when all was said and done? Christians of 2017 can certainly feel overwhelmed and powerless, unable to take on many things that we face in this world, whether of a personal nature in relationships or job struggles, financial issues, illness, impending death, long-term employment, whatever it may be, we can feel very powerless before a lot of things. And yet a lone believer praying in the midst of any modern crisis is someone wielding a great deal of power. How many times do we hear somebody say, well, I guess we've done everything. All we can do now is pray. I love to smile when I hear that because what is the person saying? They're saying, we've tried as hard as we could to remedy a situation, and I don't know if prayer does anything, but we might as well pray. It can't hurt. Maybe it's futile, but let's try it. Listen, we ought to be people who say, before we exhaust our resources and try and try and find out we can't do it, the great thing we should be doing as disciples of Jesus Christ is praying. Delving today into this text, first of all, I'm coming back around to a subject I talked about quite a few weeks ago, how the providence of God intersects with prayer. The things that God is determined to do and that he decides by his own divine decrees without consulting us or, or hearing from us about it, the things that God would do if we weren't involved. We call the providence of God. He's the all-sovereign God. Surely he doesn't simply sit around waiting for us to pray before he can do anything, nor does he make up his mind to do things just because we decide to ask him. There are great mysteries here, how the decrees of God and the mind of God interacts with his people praying. But a little bit of it is set before us here, especially as we think about the absolutely different situation between James, the brother of John, who was a close associate of Peter, James got killed. Peter didn't. Peter didn't because, apparently, of prayer. And we're asking ourselves, didn't anybody pray for James? What happened there? Was it just an arrest that came so fast that nobody had a chance to even realize hardly that he'd been taken and he was slain immediately? That, that's a possibility. But one man, a disciple loved by Christ, is beheaded. And another one is spared. And we want to ask, well, why in the providence of God did prayer make a difference for one and not the other? Was this a failure of God in some way? God forbid that we should even think that way. You know, we 
see this here. Peter captured, and, and they were warned this time. They knew that the government meant business, that Agrippa would kill, and probably had issued some kind of a, a warning that this would happen. And so now, oh, they were all on the alert. They were ready to pray. In fact, the text says the church was earnestly praying, not just once in a while. Remember, Peter got out of jail at night and went to the house where they were praying, and there were a considerable number of disciples there praying at night, which implies to you that the church was deeply concerned. They knew that where this government was concerned, the the tune was being played, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And Peter's life was literally in jeopardy. So they petitioned God somehow, oh Lord, save Peter. Ask yourself this though. If you're a skeptic who would look at this and say, well, I don't get it. Well, why would God let one premier apostle be slain and the other one not? Poor James, he's the, he's the loser here. Well, I would argue with you whether James was a loser. Stop and think what you're saying. James was the first of the 12 disciples to be ushered into the eternal presence of Jesus, his resurrected and glorified Lord. Was James really disadvantaged? Is a Christian saved by Christ, indwelt by his Spirit, walking with Christ, hoping in Christ, ever disadvantaged by what you may term to be an early or premature death? God can be exalted by a believer's life or his death. Philippians 1.20 says to us, he gives us that prayer of Paul where he says that I may have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be glorified in my body, whether by life or death. Whether I live or die, I can glorify Christ, Paul said. In fact, you hear him later in Philippians saying, I, it's hard to choose. I would rather be with Christ. That would be better. But I think he wants me to remain for now in this life. So don't give your total pity here for James, even though the sword indeed flashed upon his neck and cut off his head. God was loving James to the very end and to heaven's gate for sure. Any Christian martyr admitted to eternal glory is not a disadvantaged person, and his death is really not untimely. That's just our way of speaking. It was in the perfect scheduling of a sovereign God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, whether we live or die? Either way, we can glorify God. Well, let's look in, in, in this subject of providence at the jailbreak for a minute. The Greek word for angel, you might know, maybe you've been told this before, is, simply means messenger, angelos, messenger. That's what angels are. They're messengers from God. And there are scholars then who will say, well, let's not get carried away with this miraculous thing here. Um, this says an angel came. It means a messenger. It could have been a human being. could have been perhaps a Roman guard or some employee of the jail who was friendly towards the disciples, and he had some political influence or some rank maybe over the guards, and he could come in and say, look, uh, I want you to turn the other way while I unlock these handcuffs, and the prisoner's not going to be here when you turn around. And you just do that because I'm a captain and you're not. 
And so there are those who tell us that that's what happened. This was a human messenger. Well, you know, here's the kind of petty reasoning you get in the Scripture that is not reasoning at all. You cannot read this account without understanding that Luke plainly, manifestly intends us to understand a miraculous thing happened here. A light shone in the cell, he says. And uh, Peter, in a fog, doesn't even know that the angel is real, and they go out and a gate opens of its own accord. Don't tell me this silly thing that this is some guard bribing the others or something like that. It just doesn't fit at all. Luke is telling us God worked a miracle to answer this prayer. Now, miracles in response to prayer are relatively rare. They do happen, but they're relatively rare. But Luke is telling us supernaturally, at the last possible hour, God responded here hours before Peter was to be taken out and killed. God's timing, God's timetable was at work. Don't we have timetables when we pray? We say, Lord, okay, you know the fix I'm in. You know the difficulty here. Uh, I've got to hear from you. I've got to have your response by 9 o'clock tomorrow or it'll be too late for you to do anything for me. And 9 o'clock tomorrow passes and there's no miracle. There's no flash of light. There's no great reversal in your circumstances. All right, God doesn't answer prayer. No, God works on his deadline, not yours. Yours is often foolish or not estimated correctly. God will often purposely, I think, let our deadlines pass just so that we would later comprehend how foolish we are to try to dictate terms to him. You might assume he has failed to act and he is working on an omniscient schedule and you're only going to figure it out months afterward. Oh, now I see what the Lord was doing there. It takes time for us to let the shoe drop and, and see what's really happening. One person said the Lord never rushes to correct your situation with a hasty makeshift repair such as you ask him for. You know that kind of, I don't even know what the right name is. They're advertising a new kind of tape on TV. I'm sure you've seen the ads. It's kind of like super duct tape. And the guy takes a, a saw and cuts an aluminum boat in half and then tapes it with his tape. And the next thing, he's out on the lake motoring around in the boat that's held together with super tape. We want God to fix things with super tape. He usually prefers to give us a different boat, as a matter of fact. He doesn't work the makeshift and the temporary that you would ask him to do. In Acts 12, there's almost no question here that it's implied there is a cause-effect relationship between the prayer of the church and the providence of God. Peter was in prison, the church prayed, and something happened. Would the Lord have released Peter the same way if nobody prayed? He certainly could have. He wasn't dependent on things happening according to prayer. God might have released Peter anyway if nobody prayed, but in this case, the anyway was prayer. And God condescended to use prayer. He's free from being manipulated by us. Don't ever think of your prayer as a manipulation of God. That's absurd. You cannot manipulate him. But he chooses to stoop down and use the means of prayer sometimes. Our Westminster Confession of Faith 
Chapter 5, paragraph 3, has a statement very concisely summarizing the doctrine we're talking about here. It says, God, in his ordinary providence, the way he usually works, God in his ordinary providence makes use of secondary means, yet he is free to work without, above, or against them according to his good pleasure. A secondary means would be prayer, for example. God can choose to work by prayer. He can also choose to work without prayer. He ordains both the ends of things that will happen and all the means involved in accomplishing those ends or goals. Well, you can actually compare what we have in this passage when you think of the providence of God to what he does in our salvation. This passage is really a living picture of a soul coming to Christ. Each of us begins our life spiritually bound and chained in the prison of sin, much like Peter's. We're dead in spiritual things. We're not aware of our terrible condition and the fact that we would face the wrath of God for sin if something doesn't take us out of that. We're asleep in our lost condition, awaiting a sentence of condemnation, and God sends His Spirit to nudge us awake. I like the fact that the Spirit, or the angel, it says, struck Peter on the side. I had the sense that it wasn't just, you know, uh, you, you try to I wake, wake my wife up. She's a light sleeper, and I don't, it doesn't take much. Just, little, honey, wake up, you know. To wake me up sometimes, she has to go, you know wake up. That's what it seemed to take Peter. Wake up, Peter. Come and follow. The Spirit of God either nudges us or maybe jabs us hard, but he brings us out of our stupor and gives us spiritual rebirth, and then we, like sleepwalkers, not really comprehending. You see what Peter said there? He he thought it was a vision. He thought he was dreaming as he walked out of that prison with his clothes half on and his hair all tousled and sleep in his eyes. That's what we're like when God saves us. We can't quite understand what's going on. Charles Wesley captured it so well in a favorite hymn, you know, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Remember the lines, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed the choir. Stand up and sing it, would you? No. (laughs) Uh, That's that's how Charles Wesley pictured what happened to Peter. A pattern for salvation. God awakening us, miraculously reviving us, leading us out of our jail, taking off our manacles, giving us a new birth. Folks, prayer and providence, as we see this picture of one thing happening to James and another to Peter, are marvelously bound together in the deep mysteries of God. Why he uses one means, not another. Why he might act one time without any visible means or intervention of human beings. God can work as he decides to work, but he often chooses to work through prayer. Well, I'll be quick with the second point. I have only one more here. But... I just ask you to recognize, come awake to God's answers to prayer as we see it here. Why were these praying believers in the house at the late hour of night? We don't know what hour it was, but it was certainly late. Why were they totally unprepared for God's intervention? 
I might as well ask, why are we usually unprepared for God to work? We pray. Do we really expect him to work? Would we know what he was doing if he did do something amazing? Peter was dazed by the experience. Slowly he obeyed instructions. It was when that gate swung open that he seemed to understand. And as soon as he understood, the angel was gone, we read here. But then came the most, what one commentator called, and I would agree with him, one of the most humorous moments in the whole New Testament. The New Testament writers love irony. So do the Old Testament writers, as far as that goes. And it's okay to laugh at something as ironic as this is. Here he comes, knocking on the door. You get a loud knock like that on your door in the middle of the night, it's somebody important, probably. People don't ordinarily disturb people after dark with loud knocking. Rhoda, the housemaid, had the role of answering the door. She comes, she looks, she hears a voice, and the funny moment is she doesn't swing the door open and say, come on in, Peter, boom, shut the door in his face and run back in again. It's Peter! And then what do they say? Hallelujah, God answers prayer. What do they say? You're crazy. Rhoda, you're mad. Don't you understand? Peter's in jail. He's going to die. Maybe they already killed him ahead of schedule and it's his angel. You're crazy. Answered prayer was to these Christians like madness. Just as on Easter morning when the reports of the empty tomb came and they said, oh, it can't possibly be. His body's gone. Somebody stole it. Let's run and find out. They didn't believe he was risen at first. But you ask, what were they praying for that they couldn't even open the door and examine to find out what God was doing in flesh and blood? In other words, their prayers, and I suggest ours, were mingled with a lot of unbelief. Isn't that true of us too? We ask something, we say, oh God, you know, it'd be nice if you did this. Now I know you might not want to do this, so it's okay if you don't do it, and you might want to do something else, and that's okay too. And we sort of tentatively, you know, put our big toe in the water of prayer and say, okay, God, maybe you could do something. But we don't really think he's going to. Do you realize that a Christian and any group of Christians coming to God in the power of fervent, earnest prayers mingled with all our weaknesses and all our doubts and all our poor statements and poor understandings of the future are like the President of the United States going to speak in Asia to people with the power of the nuclear arsenal and all the wealth of the United States behind him when he speaks. Listen, you know, this isn't just some peasant wandering in off the street. This is a man to be heard. And when we speak to God as his children in Jesus Christ and come in the name of Christ, seeking in the Holy Spirit and saying, Oh God, I earnestly plead with you to be active in this situation, to bring your will to bear. I may not understand it correctly, Lord, but it looks to me like this is needed. And if that is wrong, would you show me your will in the mighty way you respond? Folks, we are so slow and so timid and so unbelieving, even in our prayer as Christians. Why are we afraid of bold praying? 
Why are we afraid when magnificent answers might even be knocking at our gate while we're inside the house negotiating a delivery schedule with God? Here's a word from the late Dr. John Stott about Acts 12. Let me give you several sentences. He said, At the beginning of this chapter, Stott said, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end of the chapter, Herod himself is struck down and dies horribly. By the way, footnote, if you like, read the, rest, read the end part of the chapter. It tells you what happened to this Herod Agrippa. Then Stott, I go back to Stott. The chapter opens, he said, with James dead and Peter in prison, Herod triumphing. It ends with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the gospel. Such is the power of Christian prayer. God-centered prayer in the name of Christ is a privileged conversation in which the Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved waking up spiritual sleepwalkers to see what God has done in the past, is doing right now, and will do in the future. A preacher from England of the last century, Alexander McLaren, said this, quote, God's mercies to us often come suddenly with a rush and a completeness that outruns all our expectations and powers of immediate comprehension. He said, later reflection will discover there was more of heaven and God's design acting in ordinary moments of a Christian's life than is visible to us while we are living through it. God is working, even right now, even in your life right now while it may not seem like it to you. Prayer joins us to divine power and divine wisdom. And there are people around us who politely say, you know, I love the news broadcasts. Some tragedy happens and they're, they're talking to the spouse or the relative of somebody who was killed by the terrorist. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. I want to say, hmm, that's interesting. I haven't yet to see a news broadcaster pause in his broadcast and pray for anybody. But our thoughts and prayers are with you. Sentimentally, and that's about all we can do is sentimentally be with you. Christians can do much more than that. We can prevail upon the power and wisdom of Almighty God and let the world say why that is spiritual insanity. Let the world say you're mad to think the creator of all things is going to intervene in your little life. Let them say that. I will choose this Christian madness over anything the world has to offer. Let Isaiah 65, 24 remind us as I conclude today that the king of heaven said there, before they call, his people that is, before they call, I will answer. Before they call, I'm going to answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear them. And then that same God in Jeremiah 33, 3, has this final word. Call to me. I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. That's the insanity of Christian prayer. Father, call us to our lives of prayer. We get frustrated, Lord. We decide ourselves, even as 
your believers that hope has reached an end, that there's no solution, that we can't do anything. Thank you for bringing us to that place because it's where we need to be, where we decide that we can't do it so that we can call upon you and know that you've been listening for us and waiting for us before we even spoke or shaped the thought. So, Father, lead us, guide us, show us what the world calls the madness of Christian prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen.